Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to Dr. Baldwin for uh, taking time out of her schedule to speak with us. That's fantastic. We're super excited. Um, I'm sorry, but you, Juan, you said the recording starts and I didn't get a pop-up, so. Oh, there we um, go, thank you. Yeah, we are recording now. Okay, great. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining the Community Change Collaborative and thank you to our special guest, uh, Dr. Andrea Baldwin for sharing her presentation with us today. The Community Change Collaborative examines the methods, frameworks, and forces shaping community development, approaches to community engagement, and how to build sustainable cross-sectorial partnerships. Our interdisciplinary research interests range from the local to the international, applying a variety of qualitative and mixed method approaches to connect theory and practice for the benefit of our graduate student and faculty members, community partners, practitioners, and researchers interested in community change. We meet weekly as a group to explore thesis, excuse me, theories and methods critically, which often leads to lively educational discussions that inform our professional and personal development. The CCC faculty forums are open to all students, faculty, and community members. The forums provide a venue to learn about the community change work of Virginia Tech faculty, and to engage in discussion about the work. Graduate students from any discipline interested in community change are welcome to join our CCC meetings. Please email June Wong if you're interested and he can add you to the listserv to receive the meeting announcements. Today's forum features the work of Dr. Andrea Baldwin. Dr. Andrea N. Baldwin is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Virginia Tech. She's an attorney at law, who also holds a Master's of Science in International Trade Policy and a PhD in Gender and Development Studies. Among her numerous publications are her most recent co-edited volume standpoints, Black, Black Feminist Knowledges, published in 2019 by Virginia Tech Publishing. And her forthcoming monograph, A, De a Decolonial Black Feminist Theory of Reading and Shade, Feeling the University, published by Rutledge. Dr. Baldwin was born and raised in the small Caribbean island state of Barbados and continued and considers herself an all-around Caribbean woman and loves everything coconut and soca. That's what's up. So thank you to Dr. Baldwin. <laughs> yes, thank you for having me. Uh, per my instructions, I'm going to stop the video and just talk so we can have the screen, just the screen. Let me do this. Awesome, so thank you everyone for coming to hear this talk this evening. Uh, I wanna specifically thank Zuleika and the Community Change Collaborative for inviting me to give this presentation. And so without further ado, I will go ahead and start. Um, so in this presentation, I will be talking about brackish as a concept and how it might aid us in thinking differently about black life. I will explore the concept by returning to its original etymology and exploring the word in its various parts of speech as a way of examining whether it has anything to offer Black diaspora, feminist theorizing, and method making. I will focus specifically on how it might apply to Black life in the diaspora and the US Academy. And then finally, I will offer what I think are some of the possibilities Brackish holds out for Black aliveness and then open up for discussion. In his 2021 book, Black Aliveness, Our Poetics of Being, Kevin Kwashi asks, 
what would it mean to consider Black aliveness, especially given how readily and literally Blackness is indexed to death? To imagine a world where Blackness exists <clears throat> in the tussle of being an exception and in ordinariness. For some time, I have been interested in the plea Kwashi makes to examine a Black world that is not tethered to Black death, but considers the ways in which Black people have always been and still are alive, the ways in which we have, despite dehumanization, always created and continue to live, especially as over the past almost two years, Black people globally have been struggling to be alive and hold on to life in the midst of a pandemic. I have been thinking about what it means to live and to have come from a people who are determined to stay alive and produce life in the form of people and knowledge, how they did this every day despite all the ways in which the world will have them perish and how we fight to be alive, stay alive and sustain life in such ordinary and everyday ways. And yet this living ordinarily is in fact exceptional. On a balmy afternoon in June, 2021, I and five other women were on a small motorboat making our way from the mainland of Belize to St. George's Key a small is let off the course of the mainland of Belize to attend a feminist writing retreat. As we zipped across the salt water, the sights all around were breathtaking. I was amazed though at how full of vegetation the shallow water was. An island girl, I am accustomed to the waters in the Caribbean being crystal clear, so transparent that you could see way down deep into its depths. Once we arrived at the islet, I was shocked and to be honest, a bit disappointed. While, this, while the place was beautiful, the waters immediately surrounding the shores were much the same as the ones I had just crossed. Not clear with visible white pink sand, but full of vegetation, such that it was hard to see anything at all. I immediately thought about the five swimsuits I had packed for this trip and felt my excitement and anticipation of relaxing on the beach after a long academic year during a pandemic dissipate. I share this story because during the remainder of this trip, I stayed intrigued about why this island off the coast of Belize did not have a beach or what I thought were the typical turquoise waters which gently rolled on and off the Caribbean island shores. I learned it was because of what I learned later on is the marine biology uh, term that is referred to as brackish. Brackish waters was a term I had heard before when I visited Montego Bay, Jamaica and toured the luminous lagoon at sunset. The lagoon is home to naturally occurring microorganisms which are bioluminescent. That is, they light up when you touch the water. These organisms called dinoflagellates thrive where salt water and fresh water combine. When I visited the lagoon years before my trip to Belize, I was captivated by the eerie light glow that was left in the wake of the boat as we made our way to a spot where we could swim. I did not swim then either. The scene seemed almost magical. And yet, as with my trip to Belize, the scene was outside of what I understood and consequently could imagine about the Caribbean waterscape and the life that is the aliveness found therein. Upon returning to the US, I started searching for more information on brackish waters. What my research within the ecology and marine biology literature has uncovered is that brackish water occurs when the interaction between Earth's major marine and freshwater realms 
form a unique narrow dynamic zone with lower salinity than in the oceans. These zones most often occur in estuarine areas, though not all estuaries contain brackish waters. Brackish waters also occurs in mangroves, marshes, lakes, and seas, and can also be engineered. Technically, brackish waters contain between 0.5 and 30 grams of salt water per liter. Thus, brackish water covers a range of salinity regimes and is not considered a precisely defined condition, but can vary considerably over space and or time. The process and results of the mixing of the salt and fresh produce harsh conditions such that brackish waters are uninhabitable to a number of species that exist solely in freshwater or saltwater spaces. Organisms that are brackish water adapted can demonstrate broad geographical ranges and can be invasive when introduced to similarly brackish environs, but sometimes there are also rare species with limited distribution. Regardless of the range, brackish conditions fuel some of the most productive ecosystems on earth and also some of the most vulnerable. The density, between, density difference between fresh and salt water means that when these two bodies meet, the lighter fresh water rises up and over the denser salt water. For estuaries, the mixing process occurs through what is called estuarine circulation. Often, this occurs at an abrupt salt front. Across such a front, the salt content or salinity and density may change from oceanic to fresh in just a few tenths of meters horizontally and as little as a meter vertically. Accompanying these strong salinity and density gradients are large vertical changes in current direction and strength. When the velocity difference reaches a certain threshold, vigorous turbulence results and the salt and fresh water are mixed. Tidal currents which act independently of estuarine circulation also add to the turbulence, mixing the salt and the fresh waters to produce brackish water. The turbulent process that produces brackish water also varies. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, with the variety of conditions across the earth, each estuary displays a tidal pattern unique to its location. For instance, the brackish water in the luminous lagoon in Jamaica, was produce, which produced organisms that glowed and lit up the darkness, were created by a different set of conditions that produced the brackish waters off the, coast of George, off the shores of St. George's Key. The lagoon stretches from the marshland of Trelawney Parish and is located where the Martabray River meets the Caribbean Sea. And in the 18th century colonial Jamaica was used as a wharf in the capital Falmouth, where large ships would load and unload goods, including sugar and other byproducts of the sugarcane harvest by enslaved people. The brackish waters off of St. George's Key were created by tidal patterns produced by sandbars located further out in the ocean, which creates a break between the body of water surrounding the islet from the wider ocean expanse. The brackish waters of the lagoon produce the conditions for organisms to exist in its warm, shallow waters that illuminated and made the place come to life. It was alive. The brackish water around St. George's Key produced waters around the islet that were teeming with life. Both of the waterscapes are not traditionally beautiful in terms of the way we think about Caribbean waterscapes as beautiful, transparent, and pristine. 
But what they have in common is that the conditions, the harsh, brackish waters produced hold within them the possibility to create life different, create different life and life differently. It is from this point that I thought about what brackish as a concept might have to offer black feminisms and diaspora studies, particularly regarding theorizing and method making and how this might help us to think about black aliveness. Let me state here very clearly that this is not a presentation about resilience, but about black aliveness. There is a difference. I'm not interested in addressing resilience, at least not in the way that it has been used to caricature black life and to prop up the violence black people experience because of the lack of access to resources, because of surveillance and the concepts of black people as superhuman because it is thought that black people Black women in particular are strong and can handle any and all adverse situations. Like Kwashi mentioned earlier and McKittrick, I am interested in Black aliveness. That is, I am interested in signaling ways of living in a world that denies Black humanity or what I am also calling Black living ability. As such, I am interested in what Brackish can tell us about Black life lived creatively, vulnerably, adapted beyond black objecthood, thinking about what brackish in this way, sorry, thinking about brackish in this way requires a return to the origins of the word. Brackish comes from the noun brack, a Dutch word meaning an opening or break, a crack, a defect. Cracks and breaks we know can create uncomfortable and harsh conditions, oh, yeah. harsh conditions, for example, flooding, infestations, injuries, and harm. But they also create conditions which produce a way of living differently, which is beyond resilience. Think of, for instance, what we refer to as a clean break. That is, to have a chance to move on and to do something different, usually more hopeful and better. When we think about the way the sandbar creates a break such that the waters around St. George's Key became a place for vegetation to grow and live, protecting it from the friction of tidal movements caused by storms or bad weather, we think about how life can thrive outside or rather inside, or perhaps more accurately because of the break, such that I, as I argue, brackish adapted organisms are more than resilient, they are alive. As such, I posit that thinking about brack in this way can be interesting as black feminist diasporic methodology and does three things as it relates to the study of Black life. First, BRAC the noun allows us to think about breaches and cracks in the ways we think about how and where people and knowledge should normally exist. To think about the BRAC as a place of the crack, the breach, the flaw, the defect, and the opening, which allows for a mixing of difference, the salty and the fresh, which produces life even in the harshness of this mixing, potentially offers a way of thinking about what is possible when we make openings happen such that we can live relationally and generously with each other. Second, when I think of the brack, that is the opening that produces the living, alive, non-transparent brackish space, the and organisms which thrive there, I think about it in the ways that Black and Caribbean feminist Carol Boyce Davies writes of elsewhere and elsewhere spaces, geographic and metaphorical, embedded in the transnational and diasporic formulation. 
that the opening creates a space that is neither purely salty nor fresh, signals a diasporic space that is neither here nor there, fully one thing or the other, cut off and yet connected, taking from separate origin spaces and bringing them together to create a different where or way of living. It is a place of reinvention, a space which Kwashi mentioned earlier, imagines blackness existing in the tussle of being in exception and in ordinariness. It is the somewhere else where he asks us to begin. The brack therefore is not simply a break or a crack, but an opening such that it forecloses and makes possible at the same time. The brack conjures up a before and an after of the present, a history and a future that the opening creates. In thinking about the brack in this way, I'm reminded of Sarah Ahmed, who writes about the here-ness of encounter, about the spatial movement from here to there. She writes, we need to ask not only how did we arrive here at this particular place, but how in this arrival linked to other place, how is this arrival linked to other places, to an elsewhere that is not simply absent or present, and how this encounter might affect where we might yet be going. The here-ness of the encounter in the opening can be off-putting and in sense paralyzing, particularly if one is not accustomed. Think back to my own experience in Belize and Jamaica. Why did I not swim? But the impacts of the encounter got me moving otherwise. Thinking about Edward Glissant's statement about the union between elsewhere and possibility and what experiencing brackish water might open up for me in terms of where I might yet go and what I might yet do as a Black Caribbean diaspora person encountering the hereness of this space. This leads me to think about Brack in a third way. How might Brack help us to think about Black diaspora feminist methodologies as breaches and openings? How does the harsh estuarine circulation which occurs when Black feminisms meets the denseness that is the academy create ways of thinking, engaging, and creating that are adaptive, unique, vulnerable, and alive in the break? How can Brack offer us a different way of thinking Black feminist livability beyond survival within the academy of the type of life, people, and scholarship that exists and are produced by and because of these breaks? How can we think about the ways in which work is created and livingness made possible within these breached spaces where several properties that normally also read historically should not come together are mixed, the salty and the fresh, Black people or Black knowledges and the academy need to be present for the people, knowledge, organisms that exist there to be alive even if vulnerably. What does this aliveness look like and what can it tell us? And yet, as I think about Brack as a place, a known also feels incomplete in that Brack also conjures up for me motion, action, doing, being, living, such that bracking a verb feels more appropriate. Davies writes of elsewhere, for example, as denoting movements and assertions of agency as we cross borders, make journeys, migrate, and in so doing reclaim and reassert. To think about Brack as a known place where there is aliveness means thinking about the living, the moving that happens in the Brack. The estuarine circulation mentioned earlier serves a valuable ecological function. The, continu the continual bottom floor provides an effective ventilation system, joining new oceanic water and expelling brackish water. If there weren't for this natural pumping and flushing process, the waters of the estuary would become stagnant, 
pollution would accumulate and oxygen would be depleted. This circulation system leads to incredible ecological productivity and leads to some of the highest growth rates of microscopic plants, which are the base for the diverse and valuable food webs, fueling the growth for some of our most prized fish, birds, and mammals. The ongoing continual action that occurs in brackish waters, the flowing, the circulation, the flushing, the pumping, the drawing in and the expelling that fuels growth and life in brackish waters demonstrates that the brackish can also tell us something about the acts of producing life and aliveness in the break. To brack the verb or bracking opens up a different way about thinking about mixing, the relationality of things thought to be unmixable and about how mixing and the ways in which we go about mixing has and can produce and sustain ourselves, our communities, and our scholarship. In addressing the usefulness of bracking as Black feminist method, method making, as it pertains to how we make community and how we think can think critically through and approach community creation, particularly in the diaspora, I turn again to, to the work of Ronaldo Walcott. Walcott writes about Black diaspora and how we exist in places and sites which do not allow for a too easy boundary of restriction, but for possibilities for transformation. Catherine McKittrick writes that the Black diaspora is not a settled place, but a way of being that the Black diaspora narrates livingness underneath, across existing maps, are beyond boundary, participating in re-territorialization, and that engaging the Black diaspora involves recognizing that its existence, experiences, resistances, places, and narratives are wide ranging, sometimes legible in their materiality and their opaque Black epistemological work. Pulling from these two theorists, it is clear to me that the circulation of narratives, the movements of people, the ongoing ability to actively imagine and engage means more than the existence of brackish space or the brack, but rather the activity that occurs within the space is critical. Diaspora is rich and teeming with life, especially because of the relationality that can occur in these opaque spaces. Within diaspora communities, there is a push and pull that occurs on a number of levels caused by harsh and oppressive circulations of contemporary iterations of coloniality. Examples of this include the everyday efforts to push through adversity and adopted homes, and yet that longing pull toward home. The ways in which as diaspora, we pull together and form communities and ways in which these communities are vulnerable due to economic and other conditions to being pushed apart. The ways in which we give and have given and take and have taken from origin and adopted spaces and in how all of this push and pull Life is sustained, resistance is ongoing, refusal is happening, celebrations are had, and life and being alive through the ordinariness of working every day, every day cultural, create, creative, and scholarly exchanges are made possible. The bracking work that Black women do in the US Academy to bring, teach, and develop their knowledge in a space that historically denied their bodies is also important. In this space, just as with the abruptness of the salt front in brackish waters, Black women also encounter abruptness entering the academy. As with estuarine circulation, 
there may be no obvious signs of turbulence visible on the surface. But what we know is that Black women are made to experience subtle and uncomfortable beneath the surface acts that are a consequence of harsh, oppressive, oppressive environments in the academy. Our entrance into the space produces or causes turbulence in the mixing. We are seen as both resilient, red strong, and invasive, and as such are vulnerable to the acts of microaggressions and tokenisms. So that while the academy has provided an opening for Black women and the development of Black women's knowledges and Black diaspora feminisms as a study, a field of study, we know that the conditions therein are harsh, even as they allow Black women scholars some space, resources, and conditions to develop their scholarship. Scholarship which did not originate in, but has the ability to grow in this brackish environment. Black women, because they find themselves in this potentially harmful, but potentially generative space, oftentimes brush up in uncomfortable ways with the rigid positivist disciplinarity of the academy, while contributing immensely to the making of new ways of thinking, where we are able to bring together ideas, texts, stories, songs, and places which involves the difficult work of thinking and learning across many sites and coming to know generously varying and shifting worlds despite and in spite of. This is bracking. I think about the ruptures and disruption that Black women from all around the globe have made in the US Academy. The openings that we have made possible through works like Audre Lorde's uses of power and power, power of the erotic. Jackie Alexander's Pedagogies of Crossing, Kimberly Crenshaw's Intersectionality, Carol Boyce Davies' work on diaspora, Christina Sharp's Wake work and work on Black annotation and redaction, Venus Evans Winter's work on daughtering, just to name a few. I also think about Alexander's work on the possibility of the murky, the gray area, the place where division, dissection, and discrete occur, where borders blur, break down, combine, and where identities form, they are created from the distinct and the mixed. What transnational feminists call border crossings, where they work to make visible in the brackish places, where the salt water meets the fresh water, what the possibilities existing in this space holds out about how we think about academic disciplinarity, how in the disorienting circulation that can occur for our Black feminists and diasporic selves as we meet the dense disciplinarity of the academy, we whirl in it around, under, above, and through layer denseness. Catherine McKittrick in her article in Small Acts, in her article in Small Acts, Rebellion, Invention, Groove, writes about how the harshness of this world affects us neurobiologically, such that some Black feminists have died and died young. Hong, for example, writes, so many of the Black feminists have died struck down by cancer and other diseases, including Barbara Christian, June Jordan, Shirley Ann Williams, Audre Lorde, Beverly Robinson, Claudia Tate, Vivi Clark. The point is, the academy is violent. And yet, these women made room, openings, cracks, so that we could enter, and such that the light, buoyant fl flows provided by their and our knowledges within and outside the academy and the camaraderie can exist, not necessarily moving with or against academic ties pushed and pulled, but because of and through these harsh, often disoriented experiences, we are changed and because of these breaches can occur. 
or be made visible such that possibilities for changes within the academic ecosystem can occur and new life and aliveness made possible. Livingness and living with each other as methodology that is relational, intertextual, interdisciplinary, interhuman, and multidisciplinary honors Black feminist studies. To move outside of assigned spaces, the salty or the fresh, and to call into question what can exist where is a rebellious methodological move that acknowledges Black life outside of violence. It is to breach, to create an opening, to brack as opposed to bracket. It is bracking. Thinking across is bracking. Our aliveness has range. Our survival can happen in the salty and the fresh, and we can thrive in the brackish too. But we have to know and understand the ecology around us, the composition of the water, the salinity, the denseness. We have to be aware, as Christina Sharp writes, of the weather and the climate, paying attention to openings that these make possible. So as not to run the risk of making bracking appear as simplistically favorable and less complex than what I hope it can offer. I want also briefly to return to the part of the definition of brackish, which is unpleasant and distasteful. Brackish may not always be pleasant. Oftentimes, as one is engaging in bracking, it might not feel good and it can drain us of life. One thing throughout this research that I have learned about estuaries as a one site where brackish water can exist is that <clears throat> an estuary with all its dynamic stirring has one attribute that can promote its own destruction. It traps sediment. When suspended mud and solids from a river enter the estuary, they encounter the salt front. Unlike fresh water, which rides up and over the saline layer, the sediment water falls out of the surface layer into the denser, saltier layer of water moving into the estuary. As it drops, it gets trapped and accumulates on the bottom. Slowly, the estuary grows muddier and muddier and shallower and shallower. This trapping of sediment is important to note because even as there is aliveness in the brackish, there is also a way in which if we are not attentive even to the workings of the openings and the break, we can become trapped as the work weighs us down and if we are not careful, can lead to our own destruction. Riffing off of Catherine McKittrick again, sometimes this is awful because we are gathering dense texts and uncomfortable ideas that wear us out. Sometimes this is awful because we are unaware, we are aware we cannot know forever, yet we are committed to the everlasting effort of figuring out how we might together fashion liberation. In so doing, we must be careful not to dissolve into the bottom. Bearing this in mind, brackish as method making has something to teach us about movement, about what and who belongs where, what species, what people, what knowledge. Bracking does not sustain categories of positivist thinking produced in the shadows of biological determinism and colonialism. Rather, that organisms in brackish waters can exist beyond biological determinism, determinism is instructive. Moving out of categories is a risk, but can lead to new ways of being alive and create new categories that cannot be contained, completely contained. Black theoretical, methodological, conceptual, and creative moves, which are diasporic and scholarly, that is academic and non-academic, counterdisciplinary thinking and systems of knowledge. To engage in bracken as method making then is to engage in a delicate balance of thinking differently about black life, 
such that we engage in ways of mixing relationality and seeing how different pieces of seemingly unrelated dimensions of life, experiences, thought, scholarship, literature, poetry, the arts can open up for us other ways of thinking, being, seeing, imagining, engaging with Black life beyond violence, trauma, death, and resilience. To brack and to do bracking work is to engage in method making that is alive creatively in the breaks, that values what the flaws and imperfections can tell us about what it means to be alive as Black people. Bracking is about being committed to possibility analytically. Bracking is to see value in the varying experiences Black people have and how they make ordinary and exceptional life therefrom every day. Just as the salinity of the estuarine waters varies from estuary to estuary and can change depending on the tides, weather, or other factors, Black folks experience varying types of harm in varying spaces. To engage in bracking as method is to recognize the harms as well as Black aliveness despite the range of harsh conditions we experience. As with the different types of aliveness in the Luminous Lagoon and St. George's Key, Black aliveness is not a monolith, that some brackish adapted species do well when introduced to similarly brackish areas, and that some are rare with limited distribution is instructive and has a lot to tell us about Black aliveness and its variability. One of the definitions of metaphor found in the Merriam-Webster dictionary is an object, activity, or idea that is used as a symbol of something else. The idea of brackish, brack, and bracking as metaphor to think about Black life and living ability is compelling. The brackish describes a place or condition and people within the brack leads to questions about its possibility for present and future Black aliveness. Drawing from Catherine McKittrick again, I recognize there are risks with leaning heavily on metaphoric concepts. However, as she suggests, rather than disregard metaphor, we sit with it such that we ask, what kind of metaphors are we? If according to Catherine McKittrick, we think of metaphors as observational scaffolding, then we can think about them as functioning to radically map existing unusable sites of struggle and liberation and joy. By seeing the metaphoric usefulness of brackish in demonstrating how black people dream and work at freedom every day, building ecosystems that are beautiful, unique, and yet vulnerable within harsh systems of oppression, signals that our creative processes make possible, not simply for black survival, but black living aspiration and working through liberation. This theoretical and methodological move on my part stems from a love for blackness and black people around the globe, not wanting blackness to always be coached in trauma and death, even as we have grappled through the pandemic with loneliness, lack of resources, harm and danger because of being frontline workers and being evicted from our homes. Black aliveness and life making during the pandemic was also visible. We were able to find and reach each other via our creativity across space and time and circumstances. Think for example of the hours long mixing by DJ Nice and the online versus battles in the US and in the Caribbean. We found ways to be alive. What bracking gives us are ways to understand that liberation is an already existing and unfinished and unmet possibility, laced with creative labor that emerges from the ongoing collaborative expressions of Black humanity and Black livingness. 
Unless and until we have to survive in harsh environments, we may not know what we are capable of. There is a kind of unknowing of the self that occurs in harsh, oppressive environments. What we thought we may or may not have done might be far off from what we actually do. We unlearn and learn stuff about ourselves. We come to know and unhinge ourselves from oppression and know ourselves differently. This unknowing and unhinging, Catherine McKittrick's writes, is awful, and I might add scary. The awfulness, though, opens up a conversation about why we do what we do and offers methods of living here in this space that despises us. This unknowing does not seek or provide answers. The steady focus is instead on working out how to share ideas and live relationally. I suppose there's a type of unknowing of the self, undoing, shedding, which has to occur as organisms come to evolve within brackish waters. There's a certain practicality to it, an ordinary and yet exceptional one. There are, of course, other ways to read brackish, which are much more complex and complicated and maybe even less hopeful than what I have laid out here. And I argue herein also lies the possibilities as bra of brackish as metaphor. Mine cannot be the only reading, and the murkiness of this holds out much possibility for Black aliveness. In conclusion, I am hoping what I have laid out in this presentation is what happens when our analytical frames do not emerge from racial violence, but instead from enunciations of Black life, so that we do not risk working with and reproducing a system that cannot see us as alive and living. What if we started from Blackness as living and alive? What if Black life opens up question marks and unanswerable curiosities? What if we believe we could breach systems by creative human aesthetics that generate a point of view away from the consensual circular social system? In the complex push-pull of the dense water, salt water and the lighter fresh water, current that is fresh and salty at the same time, the opaque water space as different from the transparent water space of the Caribbean seas of which I am accustomed, life evolves. When I think of the living aliveness that are the consequences of this harsh environment, I think for instance of the Middle Passage and of Edward Glissant's theorizing that the consequences of the Middle Passage rupture, the outcome of annihilation is a way of knowing and belonging capriciously and generously. Thinking of the brackish as a break, an opening, and a rupture, helps us to see that as Black people, we come from a long, long, long lineage of living and being alive in the break. We have always bracked. We have always sustained, created, and evolved life. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Baldwin. Um, so now I think, uh, it is time for uh, folks to either ask questions um, or um, type something in the chat if that is your method of uh, preferred method of communication. No questions? That's good. All right. <laughs> I guess I'll start, but uh, I'm sure people have more insightful comments to make. Um, but uh, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful and um, really thoughtful exploration of this metaphor 
Um, and it, I, I actually brought to mind a conversation we had had, I think last semester in CCC where we were talking about Black Shoals. Mm -hmm. with, yeah. <laughs> so I was wondering to what extent um, you see the parallels with that book. Um, and I, I understand that, let me just pull up the um, description here. I think we just read a chapter from it, but it's um, it's by Tiffany Lothago King, who um, she uses the shoal, an offshore geologic formation that is neither land nor sea, as mm -hmm. a mode of critique and methodology to theorize the encounter between Black studies and Native studies. So she's looking at a slightly different um, topic, obviously, but I think I what came across to me was the the use of metaphor of a a natural um, incidence to, you know, think through social, a social relationship. Um, so if you had any thoughts on that, thank you again. Yeah. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, that work is, um, has, has been in the background as I'm, as I'm theorizing uh, Brackish. However, the work of other people like um, C. Riley Snorton's work on um, on the swamp um, and the way in which folks are engaging with so so these are these works are all in my opinion because I'm a black feminist and I and I prioritize the work of black feminists um, are all the work that I'm doing is actually in line with the work that Catherine McKittrick is doing and so you found that you heard I mentioned Catherine McKittrick several times on black geographies. And so these are all in line with some type of thinking about geographies in a very different way. Thinking about geographies, both in Black Shoals, also in uh, Catherine McKittrick's work on black geographies, also in C. Riley Snorton's work on the swamp are thinking very differently about how space is socially constructed and what can we do with space as socially constructed where when those of us who are constructed as outside of certain spaces, including the academy or including in the West, even though we have been in these spaces for a long time, but, but are constructed out of these spaces by virtue of our identities and our histories and the histories of colonialism, what happens is that we have to really engage with space as different. And so for me, while they're engaging with space as being socially constructed outside of space and therefore space is oppressive, I want to take it a little further, further and think about how then have we been also creating spaces for ourselves where can, we can be alive and that there's a liberty in those spaces and what I'm calling livability such that those spaces do not define us even though those spaces are harsh. And so I want to move from, or I want to not move from, but I want to bring the conversation along in line with the works of Kevin Kwashi, who's talking about Black aliveness, because I'm really, Black people are not always death and trauma, and also not always resilience, because resilience is used to oppress Black people as well, when it is misused. And so kind of bringing all of these works that are thinking critically about geographical space in humanistic terms, um, is where I'm trying to go with this. So even in my book that is going to be coming out um, next month, I'm thinking about university as a space that really produces 
an affect that is makes people like me feel shitty all the time. So I'm walking around the university always angry or always sad or all like never happy, never feeling like I can live unless I create or I'm in spaces that were created in the university by black women, which is in this case, sometimes one day a week. So four days a week, I'm walking around the university angry and feeling shitty. Um, and so I want to think about how how do we move from how do we move from from the sediment into aliveness? I'm not sure if I answered the question. I just went all around the world. <laughs> Andrea, um, this is fascinating. I guess I had three thoughts, and they're kind of related. Um, I'm not sure it's a question here, but just things that we're we're thinking about as we consider the dynamics of social change broadly. So as you know, we're working in Mare which is a favela in Rio de Janeiro. And one of the ways that I've kind of tried to articulate the question you were just raising about how that population has responded generatively itself to the continued discrimination and oppression, both of the Bolsonaro regime, more generally of the society, gets to the question I think that you're raising because effectively um, they are finding ways and we're trying to explore with them the ways in which as a collectivity, they're responding continuously in, uh, to the kind of conditions that they confront in a generative way. So their agency is everywhere present, its significance is everywhere present, and in important ways, they are shaping significantly the, the character and quality of their lives, which is not often enough remarked, I think, in these kinds of discussions. So I think we're very much on the same wavelength in terms of other work that we've been thinking about in this group. The other thing that came to mind is we've, we just spent two days with Karen O'Brien and Karen's of course a climate change expert and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. She was a member of the panel in 2007 on climate change. And she's exploring the implications of quantum social theory or quantum theory for social science and particularly for climate change, for thinking about the dynamics of social change. And if there's one construct that one can come away with when one thinks about the idea of quantum and its applications to, so, to society and social dynamics, it would be relationality mm -hmm. um, and this kind of radical relationality. And as you so beautifully put it, acknowledging a radical relationality as a beginning point uh, to secure the potential for change. And that, that was another very interesting convergence of what you're arguing and what I think we're beginning to see argued in other realms, actually in international politics and in science and so on, um, that are coming to similar conclusions, similar mm -hmm. kinds of questions. And is your metaphor um, is also a place, I think, in which that convergent, convergence, your particular metaphor, is especially rich. I could think of others, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting and important one for that very reason. The third thought, all of these unrelated, I apologize, uh, are not unrelated, but related at their core. Um, I was interested in thinking about Appalachia a few years ago, um, and I became interested in the art of kintsugi, which is an art in Japanese pottery. So rather than throw pottery away in Japan, there's a whole art form that's evolved historically to repair it. Um, but it's not repaired in a way that you can't tell that it was broken. Mm -hmm. It's repaired in a way where the areas of breakage are mended with lacquer or often with powdered gold, silver, platinum. 
they become uh, a different object mm -hmm. in this process, but one can still see the legacy, the historical antecedents and so on in which um, from whence they came and the breakage itself, the history is a part of the object, mm -hmm. not something to disguise, but it's a part of the object. And that's a philosophical frame that I found myself thinking about listening uh, to your presentation here that um, that's an elementally important point, mm -hmm. kind of think through what its implications are. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think all of these metaphors, all of these ways are thinking about the entanglement um, in, in uh, quantum terms of our relationships and the powerfully significant force of those relationships, not only in specific groups, but more generally across populations writ large for um, the outcomes, you know, your daily outcomes of living on campus, for example, uh, of your everyday lives. So I'm, I may not be coming from the same literature, I guess what I'm saying, but I think this is really a very, very rich and fertile, and I appreciate it very much, um, set of comments that you've made, and they're intersecting with other things that this group has been thinking about as well. Hope I'm that makes some sense. Yes, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Yes, yes. Thank you. I had a few comments. I'm I'm a little bit sick right now, so it might not come out very well. But I mean, the first time you uh, you know like you met me, I slipped and I I guess like my bag or something. <laughs> Speaking with Dr. Alexander Graves. So um, you know, at the risk of embarrassing myself, I thought the notion of brackish was so refreshing because it is a conceptualization of agency, but it's not an over deterministic. Conceptualization of uh, black agency. So a lot of uh, a lot of what I heard was um, precisely what uh, someone like Orlando Patterson had failed to theorize, or does not theorize precisely because he does not give the human quality. And obviously, in that context, of course. But um, so, if you could speak more about the humanity of the notion of brackish and what what some radical and we read the book, and this is also intersects with what we've been reading uh, a book by Dr. Vishnagar and her idea of uh, radical vulnerability, I certainly intersects with, I think, this ontological condition that you describe as brackish. So if you could further elaborate us on uh, the possibilities for uh, agency with regards to this term, um, you know, that would be much appreciated. Thank you. Oh yeah. Um, so as I'm, as, I'm, as I'm thinking about brackish and one of my really good friends has pushed me to think about messing, it's, it's messy, but even messing it up some more. Um, I'm reading, so I, I just want you to know what I'm reading as I'm reading Brackish, as I'm thinking about Brackish. I'm reading Sadia Hartman's work, for instance, on consenting agency in scenes of subjection, re, re, revisiting that and Sadia Hartman saying, you know, and also Jose Munoz's work that, you know, the minoritarian subject does not always dance because they're happy. Sometimes they dance because their feet are being shot at. Um, and Sadia Hartman saying that with regard to the Kafal and the enslaved people who are whipped and um, to sing and dance. And so there's this consenting agency because you are, you're being whipped, um, but you need to, but you need to agree in, you know, in, in, in courts to dance and sing because there's some relief that will happen from the whipping if you dance and sing. Um, or that sometimes we are moving through the academy, at least some, me, I can speak for me, I'm moving through the academy 
And there's a means to an ends in some ways where it does not, I don't feel as though I'm consenting to a lot of things. And I don't feel as though I'm, I'm an agent of my own making. Um, you know, so sometimes I sit on these committees for inclusion and diversity. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you don't really believe in this shit anyway, you know? And so, but, but there's a way that you have to make sure that the students who are being, who are being recruited are retained and that they actually have a space in university, which they don't feel as shitty as I feel half the time. And so there's a way that agency and consent does not does not translate very well and it needs to be messied and there's even a way in which we're in our communities where we are thinking that we're thinking relationally and we're thinking capriciously and we're thinking generously that some of us are not and some of us are not interested in that and how can that cause us to sink to the bottom right in terms of sediment um, and so there's a lot of things I'm thinking along with as I'm as I'm doing this work in terms of the humanity of brackish because I'm even using uh, thinking about Lauren Berlant's work um, and how Lauren Berlant talks about cruel optimism. No, I'm not going that far because I'm not I'm a pessimist at heart. <laughs> and so I'm never optimistic about anything, but how even in me doing the work that I do on campus, I might be. Um, asking students to buy into something that I don't believe in by telling them, you know, uh, by sitting on committees that make it possible for them to be here, right? Um, and sitting on committees that make it possible for them to be here, but while they're here to be harmed, because that's what happens when black students and brown students and queer students and women and people with disabilities come to a university space, they, they are harmed. And I make no apologies about saying that. That's, that's, that's what I feel and that's what my, the literature that I read say. And so how is my engaging in, in trying to help them while they're here, also helping the university, for instance, to, to use that work to bring more people to be harmed some more? And so how do we, how do we, so this is what I'm thinking as I'm thinking about Brackish and thinking about how this is where the humanity, like this is where it needs, this is very new to me. Like I thought, started thinking about this last summer. So I'm still teasing out some of it, right? And so there's, there's possibilities, but there are also some things that are messy that I need to continue to work through. I, I'm not, does that answer your question? Yes, it's, I mean, yes. Most, some of the most thought provoking um, conceptual exploitation of, uh, Black, black experience, particularly, uh, yeah. I think in answering his question, you, you kind of touch on my, hi, Dr. Bolden, um, this is what <laughs> I was gonna ask about brackish possibilities in a um, disciplinary space like the academy, but I think in answering Juwan, you kind of touch on it a little bit, but if you have another example, like a concrete example of how, you know, just in everyday, um, existence in the academy um, as emerging scholars, like how can we find um, those possibilities? Uh, I think, you know, that would be nice, but thank you. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, when I think about brackish possibilities in the ac academic space and how, when I particularly mention folks like Audre Lorde and Barbara Christian and June Jordan and all those people who have died early, but who created an opening for me to kind of do this work. Because otherwise, as a Black woman, I would not be able to do the work of thinking um, because my body is not seen as a thinking body. 
my body is think, seen as an emotional labor body and, and labor meaning with my hands and not with my, with my brain. Um, and so when I think about coming into this space where these knowledges that these women gave me in, in terms of that being the lighter fresh water and coming to the academic disciplinarity with that being the denser salty water and that harshness mix in so that there are ways in which my knowledge does not or the knowledge that is, a, is in the tradition of black feminisms causes turbulence. Um, I think also about how in that turbulence making, um, I am able, I mean, like we have a writing group, a black women's writing group. That to me is bracking. What we do in there on Wednesdays between nine and one o'clock is bracking. It is the most refreshing, most, um, it is as we have created an ecosystem. It is an ecosystem when you think about brackish and you think about how every day we are, every Wednesday from nine to one, we are, we are going into this brackish and, and brack, we are going into this space of, cre of engaging with each other as in working, as in talking, as in providing validation, as in provide, providing a space where we have to exist, yes, in the salty of the academy and the fresh of the Black feminisms, but we thrive when we're together in that brackish space and we're bracking, at least in my opinion. Most of the writing for this, for this presentation happened in my writing group on Wednesday mornings from nine to one. It was, I was able to create something that was built from experiencing the salty, but also validate, val valuing the fresh of black feminisms in that space. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Brown. <laughs> I think I Juan, are you watching the time? I think we are just we are just about out of time. <laughs> uh, and um I want to again uh thank Dr. Uh, uh Andrew Baldwin for um the explication of and such a thought provoking and not only is a is a thought provoking subversive uh agenda and a particularly a research agenda that is not just the research but a way of living a way of existing. So um, thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and stop record. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.